0: Welcome to Sentient Developments, the podcast...
1: All right, welcome to the Sentient Developments podcast. My name is George Dvorsky, I'm chairman of the board at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies and a blogger at sentientdevelopments.com. The Sentient Developments podcast addresses such topics as science, technology, futurism, and transhumanism. In today's episode... Lots to discuss, lots going on, both in terms of my personal life. I'll bring up the speed and all that in just a second. But in terms of the segments, for the first segment, am going to look into NASA's rethinking of their Mars strategy. And then this is especially in consideration of a launch window that's set to open in 2018. Also going to describe how we might be able to beam solar power to Earth by using Satellites. And then close that particular section by just talking very briefly about Jeff Marcy, a veteran astronomer who has recently joined SETI and will help them in their search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In the second segment, going to talk um, about bioethicist Linda McDonald Glenn and uh, in pers- in, in, in specifically her perspective on what is a person. Then, after that, going to go back in time and Consider um, dinosaurs and wondering, could dinosaurs ever evolve to, let's say, human-like intelligence? And maybe do other planets have advanced, so-called advanced dinosaurs running their planets? And we'll look into that, and uh, perhaps some critiques, uh, both are for and against that idea. And I will conclude the episode by looking into gender selection, particularly here in Canada. So we're going to delve into some bioethics particularly as it pertains to current-day issues, and uh, that will conclude cl- this show. Alright, so n- first of all, before we get on to those things, like I said, news to report. So I have some exceptionally good news to report, and that is I have formally been admitted to the University of Toronto's Joint Centre for Bioethi- Bioethics Program uh, in a Masters of Bioethics starting in September. And it's a two-year program, so it'll take me two years to uh, work toward getting a master's, uh, specifically a master's of health sciences in bioethics. And uh, like I said, it's going to be right here in the Toronto area, University of Toronto at the Joint Centre for Bioethics. And uh, that will lead to a very different trajectory, I think, in terms of my career and my focus and the kind of accreditation that I have. So it looks like I'm going to be a bioethicist when I grow up. Um, interesting. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a crazy couple of years. But I'll have to offset it with uh, work at the same time. So it's a program that does lend itself toward working full-time and being back in school. But clearly, uh, working uh, full-time and working on a master's is going to be rather challenging, to say the least. In other news, starting May the 1st, I will be conducting an online course about transhumanism, courtesy of the Center for Free Inquiry. And if you're interested in uh, signing up and attending this online course, you are absolutely welcome to do so. And the way you can find out more about this is go to the Center for Free Inquiry website and go into their education section and look under course information for their online seminars. I'll give you just a brief outline of what the, um, the course will be like. It's, it is simply entitled Transhumanism. And it's, like I said, it's going to be, um, Starting on May the 1st, and it's going to be for one month, and it'll be a four module seminar. It's going to provide an introductory survey of transhumanism, which we describe as a forward looking philosophy and an ethics that advocates technological improvements to fulfill hopes for better living. I'm going to be doing this in conjunction with John Shook, who is the Director of Education and the HAA Education Coordinator at the Center for Free Inquiry. And the, the way that I've broken it down, um, I've broken it down into, um, I guess, four primary sections. And um, it will introduce students to the philosophy and sociocultural movement that is transhumanism. And I'll read now from the blurbage from the website in terms of the description. quote: We will survey its core ideas, history, technological requirements, potential manifestations, and ethical implica- implications. Topics to be discussed include the various ways humans have tried to enhance themselves throughout history, the political and social aspects of transhumanism, The technologies required to enhance humans, including cybernetics, pharmaceuticals, genetics, and nanotechnology, and the various ways humans may choose to use these technologies to modify and augment their capacities, including radical life extension, intelligence augmentation, and mind uploading. Along the way, we will discuss social and ethical problems that might be posed by human enhancement. So again, if you're interested uh, in attending, uh, please sign up as soon as possible to get started on May the first. It costs seventy dollars for the general uh, population, the general registration. Uh, if you are a CFI friend of the center, that'll cost you sixty dollars, and students, uh, it's just a thirty dollar charge. And if you have any questions about this course, just contact me directly, George at sentientdevelopments.com. And lastly um kind of excited here to uh, announce this very preliminary yet though but looks like um i'm going to be um helping to organize and kickstart a conference on personhood now this is very preliminary nothing's been um i guess announced yet we're still looking to see uh, looking the viability of such a thing but um I've put together a bit of a proposal here. This is going to be done through the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and I've tentatively titled the conference Personhood Beyond the Human. And it will be, as far as I'm concerned, um, one of the first, if not the first, conference to look into the issue of personhood under the larger umbrella of person consideration to include not just non-human animals, but also to include the potentials for machine minds, and we'll delve into some robot ethics and things like that. So um, hopefully that won't scare away some of the animal rights people, and hopefully the, that won't scare away some of the, uh, let's say, AI theorists. Uh, I think we need to bring the entire community together and talk about the larger um, scope, the larger issue that is personhood theory. So, uh, just quickly describe the summary here. Owing to a number of scientific and technological advances, it is becoming increasingly difficult to withhold judgment on the issue of non-human sentience and, in some special cases, personhood. A number of non-human animals, including the great apes, cetaceans, elephants, they exhibit characteristics and tendencies consistent with that of a person's traits like self-awareness, intentionality, creativity, symbolic communication, and many others. The question facing us now is this, is it a moral and legal imperative that we now formally identify those animals as persons and extend the protection of human rights from our species to all beings with those characteristics? In addition, given pending advances in human enhancement, cybernetics, and artificial intelligence, is the day coming when personhood status may be conferred to modified humans and our artifacts as well? The personhood beyond the Human Conference will tackle these questions and take a hard look at our evolving notions of personhood by analyzing them through the frameworks of neuroscience, behavioral science, philosophy, ethics, and law. Special consideration will be given to discussions of non-human animal personhood, both in terms of understanding the science and philosophy behind personhood, and ways to protect animal interests through the establishment of legal precedents and by increasing public awareness. By the close of the conference, attendees will have gained an enhanced understanding of the neurological, cognitive, and behavioral underpinnings of personhood and those traits required for such consideration. Personhood Theory the history of personhood consideration and status, both in terms of philosophical and legal conceptions, the legal hurdles and requirements for granting personhood status outside of the human species, and the potential implications of human enhancement, cyberization, robotics, and machine intelligence to the personhood debate. End quote. And I've Basically, broken down the conference into three major chunks. We could probably do one of these per day for, obviously, over the course of a three-day conference. On the first day, we look into the science of so the neuroscientific, cognitive, and behavioral examinations of personhood, where we will bring in some experts, uh, zoologists, neuroscientists, even who will determine that and show us the neural correlates of personhood and the considerations for digital correlates of personhood in machine minds. On the second day, we would just go write hardcore philosophy and ethics. So look at the evolving notions of personhood, how we wish to define persons, and thinking about persons outside of the human realm, whether they be biological, cybernetic, or digital. And then on the last day would be the kind of like a, a practical hands-on approach, uh, looking into the society and legal aspects. Uh, and so that what do we do to ensure that all persons get protections? Uh, what are the implications of endowing animals with human equivalent rights? Issues of obligations in animal stewardship, and, of course, how to raise public awareness and acceptance of non-human personhood. All right, so that's that's the, again, this is very preliminary. Nothing's been announced just quite yet. Uh, if we should do this, it would, wouldn't happen really until 2013. We're thinking spring of 2013. And right now, a, big, a candidate venue for the event would be Yale. And uh, looking to get some um, co-sponsorship right now and some assistance from some Yale people as we have a couple of contacts there who are very much interested in this issue. So ideally, it would be Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies in conjunction with uh, like-minded programs and institutes. So that is the news. So yeah, going back to school, running a course on transhumanism at CFI, and uh, looking to put together a conference next year at Yale on personhood. So obviously, lots on the go. All right, let's take a quick break, and when we get back... I'm going to just cover a couple of, uh, I guess, uh, space-related items that uh, kind of came to my attention last week. are six years away from the next best launch opportunity to Mars. And NASA, they want to be ready. And so what they're doing to that end is they're reformulating their Mars strategy, basically throwing out their old ideas, their old plans, and looking to um, rethink what they're going to do moving forward, both in terms of the near term and the long term. And they're going to conduct a workshop this coming June in Texas to get the whole party started. So their workshop's called Concepts and Approaches for Mars Exploration. And the meeting is going to bring together a host of experts and groups. They want to basically bring in the entire community of thinkers on the matter. So there's going to be scientists there, engineers, graduate students, academics, even other NASA centers and federal lab people, industry people, and international partner organizations. It's going to be tremendous in terms of the different uh, backgrounds and specialists that will come in. And the point of the workshop will be to provide an open forum for presentation, discussion, and consideration of any and all concepts, options, capabilities, and innovations that will advance Mars exploration. And of course, it's got to be within budgetary constraints and logistical constraints. So that will be part of the challenge for those people coming in to propose various models for exploration. And it's clear from the way NASA has described this workshop that they're hoping to inspire the innovation of some next-level capabilities. It's also clear that the robotic exploration of Mars remains a high priority. And it's not just this 2018 window that's being considered. NASA wants to start planning for both short-term and longer-term projects. And they are being driven, uh, much of their thinking is being driven, by the President's challenge of sending humans to orbit Mars in the decade of the 2030s. So they're already kind of thinking ahead in terms of that particular phase of Mars exploration and seeing, can we send humans maybe not directly on the surface but certainly uh, to orbit Mars by twenty thirteen and so to that end, they've broken down their timeframes to two periods they want to have planned for the twenty eighteen through twenty twenty four period and then a mid to longer term timeframe spanning twenty twenty four to the mid twenty thirties and there are three basic areas that uh, or ch- what they call challenge areas that they're hoping to address first instrumentation and investigation approaches secondly are safe and accurate landing capabilities mars ascent and innovative exploration approaches and lastly mars surface system capabilities so those are the three areas so they put basically put a, a, like a call for paper call for papers and a call for proposals looking to kind of out in a way engage the wider public and outsource the work to some of the more capable people that can help them put this together and uh, the workshop will be held from June 12th to 14th at the Lunar and Planetary Institute, which is at the University of Space Research Association building in Houston, Texas. So very cool. And we'll see what comes out of that. My only concern there is how cash-strapped NASA is today. And we'll see what kinds of plans that they can put up um, and propose, given that uh, this is a kind of public sector type work. All right also space related the question of how do we how do we um if you will uh transmit or beam energy that we extract from solar panels that are uh, planted in space and this is a problem that uh, obviously is part of the whole dyson shell scenario because we have to you know it's one thing to collect energy it's another thing to then transmit it to desirable areas and there's no question, in my opinion, that we need to seriously consider the harvesting of the sun's energy in space with massive solar solar panels. But the question, again, is how do we get that energy back to Earth? So NASA, they they think that they found the answer, and that answer is power-beaming solar power satellites. And it's not necessarily a new plan, but it's starting to get a bit of traction in terms of the idea. And it was developed by John Mankins, who's leader of the first NASA solar power satellite development team back in the 1990s. And he calls his proposed project SPS-ALPHA, which stands for Solar Power Satellite Via Arbitrarily Large Phased Array. And Mankins claims that it's the first practical solar power satellite concept that uses a novel biomimetic approach. So what the project would do, it would make possible the construction of huge platforms from tens of thousands of small elements that can deliver remotely and affordably tens to thousands of megawatts using wireless power transmission to markets on Earth as well as missions in space. And the idea was that it would be um, a collection of um, uh, microwave power transmission panels that will generate the coherent low intensity beam of radio, uh, radio frequency energy and transmits that energy to Earth. So the, it would do this by using, a lar- again, a large array of individually controlled thin film mirrors outfitted on the curved surface of a satellite. And these movable mirrors would intercept and redirect incoming sunlight toward photovoltaic cells affixed to the backside of the solar power satellite's large array it would be in a geosynchronous orbit with the Earth so it can constantly stream those radio uh, transmissions to a, s- a target area. And uh, the the graphic representations I've seen of it just show a very large circular area, uh, like, like a massive field that will obviously no humans, I would imagine, or any, anybody would be allowed to go into that area as it's going to be the receiving end of all this energy, at which point it will be converted to, let's say, electricity and so on. So again, the Earth-pointing side of this large modular circular array would be tiled with a collection of microwave power transmission panels, and it will generate that coherent low-intensity beam of radio frequency energy and transmit that energy to Earth. What's also neat about this concept is that it would enable the construction of a solar power satellite that can be assembled entirely from individual system elements that weigh no more than 110 to 440 pounds, and that would allow all pieces to be mass-produced at dramatically lower cost than traditional space systems. So... It sounds like they've got this pretty figured out. Now we just need to do it. And lastly, before we end uh, the kind of news, uh, space news section, a bit of news in the SETI world, astronomer Jeff Marcy. This is the guy who's famous for discovering 70 of the first 100 exoplanets. He also discovered the first system of planets around a sun-like star. But now he's looking for something different. He wants to focus on finding extraterrestrial intelligence, so to that end, he is the new chair of SETI at UC Berkeley. And uh, Slate uh, recently ran an interview of Marcy. And uh, just to give you a, a quick uh, glimpse or a snippet of what he had to say or where his thinking is at. So Slate asked him, what's your plan to find aliens? And here's how Marcy responded. Quote, if Gene Roddenberry is right and the Klingons and the Romulans are really out there, they have to communicate with each other. They aren't going to do this by stringing fiber optic cables between the stars. They're going to do it with lasers. Lasers are a logical way to go because you can maintain a level of privacy by confining your laser to a beam narrow enough that it just hits a spacecraft or the civilization that's around another star three light-years away. Not to mention, you save energy. Why spread energy everywhere like a radio transmitter does? If our galaxy is teeming with advanced technological life, it has lasers crisscrossing it, tens of thousands, millions of them, and we should be able to pick up some spillover. Also, some aliens are going to try to communicate with us. Maybe they are literally pointing their lasers at us, and we just aren't looking. The next question, end quote, the next question Slate asked was, you think aliens may have identified Earth as a habitable planet? To, and Marcy responds, quote, In the next century or two, we humans will have planet-finder telescopes that span our solar system with mirrors strewn from here to Jupiter, giving us enormous angular resolution so we can do the kind of science that a self-respecting advanced civilization ought to be doing. We should someday be imagining the continents on, sorry, imaging the continents on other planets. We can't do that yet, but aliens can do that already, so they know we are here, End quote. And the, another question Slate asks, Marcy is, what makes you sure aliens can do this already? And Marcy responds, quote, oh, because our galaxy is 10 billion years old. The Earth is only 4.5 billion years old. We are a firefly flicker in the great astrobiology of the galaxy. They presumably have had their light bulbs on for much longer, end quote. So interesting to see this particular individual join the SETI ranks. It sounds like he has a mix of old ideas with new ideas. Not sure I'm sold on the laser concept. I'm not going to dismiss it altogether. It's certainly a, a potential signature that we might want to consider in our search for extraterrestrial life. I also do like his ambitious... Um, and realistic, if you will, perception on our, how our advanced telescopy could work as well and the kinds of, you know, implications that may mean in the future in terms of our ability to sense, um, eco- ecosystems in exoplanets and even the potential for intelligent life, uh, in terms of their presence on, in ecosystems such as, let's say, carbon emitting signatures and so on. That would be indicative of intelligent life. Uh so that I like uh, and also sounds like he has a firm grasp on on Fermi paradox because he does talk about how the galaxy is so ancient and how we are so relatively new and that there's a kind of an unanswered question about well where is everybody given these sort of sort of parameters. So that's kind of cool as well. Um I often find that that's lost in the discussion at SETI. So I wish Mr. Jeff Marcy the best of luck at SETI and uh hopefully he'll maybe help to modernize the uh the the organization and expand the ways in which they're looking for uh, extraterrestrial intelligence and the different kinds of artifacts that we should be looking for. All right, let's take a break. And when we return, we're going to shift to personhood, issues of personhood, and in particular, the perspective from bioethicist Linda McDonald glenn It cannot be This galaxy is lifeless I keep on searching for your sign all the
0: oxen free, the telescope is watching for any trace you leave behind.
1: McDonald Glenn is an American bioethicist. She's also a healthcare educator, lecturer, consultant, and an attorney at law. She's also a friend of mine and a colleague at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and we've collaborated on uh, on papers before, and we chat once in a while. We have extremely converging interests when it comes to evolving notions of personhood, and in particular, the protection of persons, uh, whether they be animals or otherwise. So our our interests clearly intersect, and uh, uh, there's very little that Linda and I disagree on. Now, Linda recently made an appearance on um, the Singularity One-on-One podcast, which, if you don't listen to, I highly recommend you do. Of course, not at the expense of listening to this podcast. Um, and uh, she was asked uh, a question by Nicola, the interviewer, about uh, what is a person. And I'd like to play that clip for you now, as uh, her ideas. Certainly, uh, not just compliment my own, but supplement my own, as she has one thing going for her that I don't, and that is she's also uh, an attorney at law, and she has a legal background. And uh, there's kind of a where the rubber hits the road aspect to her work in terms of uh, personhood consideration and what the law will allow or not allow in terms of Uh, the ways in which we we are able to protect either persons or those things we deem to be not persons. So have a listen here. This is, again, Linda McDonald-Glenn on a very recent episode of Singularity One-on-One podcast.
0: Perhaps I should just ask you to spell it out a little bit more clearly for our viewers who, just like me, do not have a background in law. Uh, And feel free to comment on it both from legal point of view and or ethical or bioethical point of view. So let's make the distinction and see how it goes. What do we mean when we say uh, that someone is a human okay. and that someone is a person? Okay. Uh, well, h- what the are law the differences? The law is a little bit different than the ethical viewpoint um, mm-hmm. uh, on this, or you could say that uh, the law informs the ethical viewpoint on this. And under, under the law, under our current legal system in the United States, we have a dichotomy, you are either a person or you are property. Okay? And we actually don't have a definition, a federal definition or a broad uh, definition of what it means to be human in the United States. Now I think it was Louisiana who's attempted to define uh, human by saying, by defining uh, it as the species homo sapiens from the moment of conception but uh, that is a very problematic definition Mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, you know, genetic variation uh, really would then exclude anybody who has a slight variation in their genes. What about, for example, the Homo florensis? Uh, We don't know uh, that were discovered in Java in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. They certainly seemed human enough, as if they were humans. We don't know because they're they're gone. Mm-hmm. But uh, really, would we want to say that they were somehow less than human? Um, that's a, a bit of a frightening thought. Uh, but back to the law. <clears throat> uh, so so there's a lot of problems with that definition, and there's a reason that this has not spread. Yeah. Uh, this attempted uh, definition has not spread. So. Um, Persons or property? Okay, there's been a traditional dichotomy in the law. However, there is there's a problem with that dichotomy, and that, that it is not held up very well. I mean, for example, women, children, and slaves were once considered property. Yeah, and uh, it took uh, it's taken more than a hundred years, but since um, gosh, since the Civil War. Uh, There has been
1: uh, um, a uh,
0: you know this ongoing battle (laughs) about uh, and and in in other countries today women are still considered property and there are still countries in the world where women are not allowed to vote and so on or take part in public life and or drive cars and it's or inherit property own property right so that's. you know that 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 is still an ongoing battle now. Here in the United States, um, fortunately, we've we've moved past that. And uh, I mean, there is, you know, I think certainly an argument to be made for discrimination, uh, but um, it it just shows that the laws do change and evolve. Now, <clears throat> where I've observed that. Um, Tradition, there are three areas currently where traditional notions of personhood are being challenged, and rather than seeing it as a dichotomy, we're seeing it more as a uh, as a continuum. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> for example, uh, in the area of um, uh, reproductive rights and and abortion, uh, certainly there have been attempts to try and define a person from um, moment of conception and you know that certainly has uh, problems and issues but right now under the law viability is the point at which uh, a fetus is uh, considered a person Mm -hmm. well with technology the way it is and accelerating how long will it be before you can be viable viable within you know a few days of fertilization yeah yeah. So that raises some interesting questions, you know, do we have a moral obligation to, you know, raise every embryo that's ever been created? <laughs> and uh, right now, the, the issue of rights and personhood of the fetus is sort of t- entangled with uh, issue of the issue of the woman's body mm-hmm. and right, uh, right to control over your own body. Mm-hmm. But um, there has been progress made on an artificial wound. And that, in and of itself, will uh, start to tease out the issue of when does this being begin to have moral and legal status. So so that's one area. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there's also been laws, like the Lacey-Peterson law, that has passed to recognize the personhood of, of fetuses, and certainly in uh, much of the... Uh, uh, right to life movement there's uh, a push to recognize uh, not only fetuses but uh, persons and if there is anything that approaches a consensus in the United States, it is that a late term abortion is more morally problematic than an early term abortion and and I really do believe that that has a lot to do with the issue of sentience the ability to feel pleasure or pain mm-hmm. So that's one area. The second area is in the issue of animal rights, and this is something that George Dvorsky and I have talked about quite a bit. Um, We have animal protection laws, and many of state laws are evolving to recognize that our companion animals are more than mere property, that uh, they may not be persons, but they are certainly more than um, uh, mere property. I had a case in Rhode Island where uh, someone deliberately killed a woman's dog. Um, and although we tried to bring it to uh, into criminal, uh, r- criminal charges, uh, there was not enough evidence and proof of intent. And we went to, when we went to civil court, the insurance company uh, said, oh, what was it, a mutt? Uh, well, why don't we give you like 50 bucks and you can go replace it at the pound? which I think most people would find pretty offensive, and certainly we did. And uh, fortunately, the state of Rhode Island had changed the law recently to uh, that that you're no longer the owner of your companion animal, you're the guardian, which raises the bar, which raises your obligations, and I believe which starts creating a separate category. Now, this is not just Rhode Island, this is happening in other states too, where language is changing, um, it's also one of the reasons that we have these animal protections law. Again, because sentience matters, Sentience matters. Uh, and then the, the third area, which is uh, uh, is is the human uh, the human machine um, merger, and uh, which is a fascinating area to me. And uh, I, I think I, I sent you my case study to yeah. ahead of time. That uh, as we begin to merge with with machines, especially as we move into nanotechnology, it's going to be harder and harder to distinguish between the human and the uh, the well, the machine. It's mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's something Ray Kurzweil said, and actually a lot of people have been saying it. You know, I I think which is that it's not going to be us versus them, us versus the machines like in Terminator. We're going to be them because we're going to be incorporating more and more technology into our bodies. Um, And um, so, uh, and at first, you know, people might feel sort of a little bit, I don't know what the right word is, uh, reluctant or... When you talk uncomfortable. Ta- uncomfortable but this is one of the things that I've observed and I really would love to see a study done on this somehow um, see so if you can find some funding to design an empirical study. when you talk to people about nanotechnology, right now uh, there was a study that showed oh people are rather uncomfortable with nanotechnology. however, when you, when they understand, um, or when they are given an example of how nanotechnology uh, can save someone's life. For example, we're going to be using gold nanoparticles to help ablate your father's tumor. Um, you know, by uh, uh, you know directing certain uh, waves, uh, you know, laser waves or whatever, and, and this will help destroy the tumor. People will see that it's, oh, it's wonderful for therapeutic purposes, and they will become more and more com- comfortable with it. Medicine is the area which is the introduction for many of these new technologies. I've got no time on my hands I mean that to a degree Not as strange as it was once thought Thankful are my friends with remorse You drove your car in the sea Looking for something to believe I had no time to refuse a feeling Thankful are my friends with remorse Thankful are my friends with remorse Save the cars that There's an
1: article making the rounds uh, that was published in the American Chemical Society. And the article asked, could advanced dinosaurs rule other planets? And that's a provocative title eye-catching to be sure, but strangely, the article has virtually nothing to do with the question at hand, and instead addresses the issue of DNA and RNA, left-right orientation, and the problem of chirality, which is a study in the origin of life. Now, it's kind of a bait and switch, really, in which the researcher, Ronald Breslow, he's clearly trying to draw attention to his work on the subject, which is in the field of chemistry. But to answer his question about uh, could could advanced dinosaurs rule other planets in a word i think no and here's why now a number of people speculate that had an asteroid not wiped out the dinosaurs they would have eventually spawned a species that would be human-like and subsequently follow a similar developmental trajectory to our own unfortunately however this assumption misses two very crucial points they didn't and they couldn't now dinosaurs ruled the earth for an astounding 265 million years And it's within that time that they produced nothing like our species. And the reason was that they couldn't. The environment wouldn't allow it. The age of the dinosaurs was marked by the presence of super predators. You know, T-Rexes and Spinosauruses, nasty buggers like that. Super predators force prey animals to adapt accordingly and along a very narrow band of morphological possibilities. In other words, animals back then needed to be able to run like hell or somehow fend for themselves. Back then, it was all about physicality. Intelligence had very little sway against the likes of super predators. Now, our species, on the other hand, we were given a lot of elbow room, uh, a lot of elbow room to evolve, thanks to the absence of these super predators. Sure, we still had nasties like saber-toothed tigers and and other uh, particularly feline animals, but nothing that compared to dinosaurs. So the asteroid can be seen as a kind of reset button on evolution, and we can be thankful for it, otherwise we wouldn't be here right now. Also recently, a fascinating study just released a couple of days ago showed how it's also that the egg-laying uh, aspect of dinosaurs was eventually something that undermined it, particularly as the species became larger and larger and larger. So basically, they're saying that the, thesis, the thesis is that if you're an egg-laying animal, uh, there's only a certain kind of a critical mass you can reach in terms of your size before you ultimately it's going to undermine your evolutionary interest. So it makes me wonder as well, um, could an intelligent, could an, is it possible for an intelligent species like humans to be also an egg laying species? Open question. Good question. And, uh, a friend of mine, um, Adam Manning, took a, took objection to my article as, and he, he, described himself as being a dinosaur aficionado. And he penned, uh, what I thought was a really neat article. Certainly opened my eyes, I think, to the diversity of dinosaur existence. And I'll just quickly uh, pull some excerpts from his article. So it's, an, it's entitled, Dinosaurs and the Evolutionary Emergence of Intelligence. And here it is from Adam Manning. Quote, the purpose in running this short missive is to issue a rejoinder to a recent article George Dvorak has written on the subject near to my heart. Dinosaurs. I've long, long been fascinated by dinosaurs and really cannot remember a time when I wasn't. In particular, the twists and turns of their evolution is an obsession of mine, even more so given the modern view that they didn't really die out all those millions of years ago, but in fact went on and now live amongst us as the birds. Birds are an enormously successful class of vertebrate animal, and is perhaps not a hugely fanciful vision to consider that the age of dinosaurs actually still continues to date because of them. In George's article, Do Advanced Dinosaurs Rule Other Planets?, he seems to characterize the dinosaur world like something from King Kong, all about enormous carnivores such as Spinosaurus and Tyrannosaurus. Instead of this fantasy ecosystem, dinosaur studies showed that they had a very large range of sizes and body forms, just as diverse as the flourishing of mammal types that followed the end of the Cretaceous. It is simply not true that dinosaur evolution followed narrow morphological restrictions, as George suggests. Dinosaur types were of many different types and evolved in a broad range of habitats. It would be useful to at least summarize some of this radically differing morphology to make the point. Indeed, the striking, and perhaps even bizarre diversity of dinosaurs is one of the things that makes them so interesting. End quote. Now, I'm not going to go into all the various dinosaurs that Manning describes. I do, I can provide you the link to the article, but there is one particular dinosaur here I do want to talk about that he brings up. This Trudon, I believe it is. Give me a second to call it up. Trudon, um, was this kind of, um, human-sized, maybe a bit smaller-sized dinosaur that had a very large brain relative to uh, other dinosaurs. I'm going to quote now from from the article. Quote, yet there were some dinosaurs that simply did not fit this view. In particular, we may examine the small meat-eating dinosaurs, the Colerousia, and uncover some types that proportionally had large brains for their body size. Attention has previously been focused on the species Trudon, which had a brain size that was in a similar proportion to the body size of birds, which is rather more impressive than many other types of dinosaur. This may not be a remarkably large amount of intelligence compared to a mammalian population, but the point is that it's just not correct to say that all dinosaurs were as dumb as each other and therefore very dumb indeed. Trudon and its cousins evolved towards the ends of the Mesozoic, that is the age that the dinosaurs is the end of the age that the dinosaurs is generally considered, so it is possible to suggest an evolution towards greater brain size. Speculation had been made that if all non-bird dinosaurs had not been wiped out at the end of the Cretaceous, then Trudon, or a similar species, may have ultimately evolved into an intelligent, bipedal animal, which would have been a dinosaur equivalent to a human, the dinosauroid, as it is called. This is, of course, guesswork, but tantalizingly nonetheless. Trudon had a certain degree of depth perception as its eyes were slightly forward-facing, and it also had four limbs with semi-manipulative fingers factors, along with brain size, which, to the imaginative mind, might suggest it was on track of evolution leading to dinosauria sapiens. There is a rather wonderful article that suggests dinosaur evolution leading to intelligence would take a much less anthropomorphic route and lead to a rather more dinosaur-looking intelligent creature, though perhaps more plausible. This is still ultimately speculation." End quote. So, uh, interesting that there is this debate. You know, uh, I'm still skeptical. I still, like I said, the the evidence... uh, kind of points to the fact that intelligence didn't emerge. I mean, one things for sure is the fossil record is always going to be incomplete. There may, let's say, there may have been some kind of an intelligent dinosaur that has, there's no fossil record of it. I'm, again, skeptical of that. Um, and again, for the reasons that I outlined earlier, I think there's just too many factors, environmental factors, that would work against uh, this kind of intelligence from emerging. Uh, I, I do believe that the, the presence of super predators, and they don't have to be large, massive super predators, even these uh, you know, the velociraptor-type creatures, these medium-sized uh, dinosaurs, must have posed a tremendous risk to um, prey creatures, and they had to evolve accordingly. They had to be able to run like hell or fly away or fend for themselves as best as they could, which doesn't leave a lot of room for um, you know, intelligence, if you will, at least not a certain kind of intelligence or human-like intelligence. Alright, so yeah, dinosaurs, always interesting, it's always even fascinating to see how the conversation about dinosaurs just keeps uh, moving forward and becomes even just more and more fascinating as time passes. Alright, now let's go to just a quick music break and we'll conclude the episode with a look at gender selection in Canada. So the issue of gender selection has once again made an appearance in the Canadian media. Rajendra Kale, an interim editor of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, he recently called for a ban on disclosing the sex of the fetus until 30 weeks, before which time it is difficult to obtain an abortion. Now the idea is to prevent Canadian parents from engaging in gender selection by means of selective abortion. The overarching fear is that boys are being favored over girls in some ethnic communities, causing a gender imbalance which could result in a number of social problems. Now, at first blush, Kale's concern and his prescription seems warranted, but like so many other issues that pertain to human reproduction, it is one that is deeply complex and multifaceted. There are many angles that need to be considered before enacting laws that block health information to parents and potentially limit their reproductive options. There's no question that gender selection is happening in Canada among certain ethnic groups. As André Picard noted in the Globe and Mail, quote, Female fetuses are being aborted because, in some cultures, girls are not valued the birth of a girl is considered a financial burden because she has few prospects of a good income, and a dowry can drain a family's finances, In particular, he notes that there is growing evidence showing that sex selection is practiced by some Canadians of Sikh, Hindu, and Chinese descent. What's not known, however, is the prevalence of this practice. It is this rise in selective abortions that has prompted Cale to call for a universal ban on disclosing fetal gender information to parents prior to 30 weeks. It would be a sweeping measure that would impact on those parents who are not interested in gender selection, i.e. those who simply want to know the gender of their offspring, or those who would use selective abortion for family balancing purposes, which is the practice of ensuring an equal number of boys and girls in the family. So, um, as the family balancing practice indicates, gender selection extends beyond the beyond the desire for just boys. Tim Caulfield, the Canadian Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, aptly notes that, quote, You may disagree or feel uncomfortable with the practice, but people who practice family balancing are not evil or nefarious, end quote. In many cases, parents are doing what they feel is best for their family. Now, Gender selection is currently prohibited in Canada under Bill C-6, also known as the Assisted Human Reproduction Act. Regardless, it's no secret, though, that Canadians who wish to choose the sex of their offspring can go to the United States and engage in embryo selection. With this technique, rather than aborting a fetus, embryos of the desired gender are implanted in the mother, and since this practice is illegal in Canada, and because most prospective parents cannot or do not want to go to the United States for this purpose, it is likely that selective abortions are being used in its place. Now, As noted, Cale's proposed legislation would impact on those families who are looking to have a boy and for those who want to engage in gender selection. Consequently, Kale's plan can be construed as another way to enforce Bill C-6's prescription against sex selection. That said, given the apparent demand among Canadians, it would appear that a review of the legislation and the potential downfalls of gender selection is in order. Moreover, when it comes to considering laws like the one proposed by Kale, legislators need to ensure that they are not conflating the rampant practice of selective abortions outside of Canada with what is happening within it. The situation in Canada is not nearly as severe as it is in India and China where gender imbalances are starting to become statistically relevant, as high as 120 male births for every 100 female births in some regions. Given Canada's cultural diversity, it is very possible that gender selection practices will have, will not have, a measurable impact on Canadian sex ratios. Consequently, it is imperative that this legislation not be considered until it can be determined that a problem truly exists. It's worth noting that sex selection can be construed as a problem outside of imbalanced gender ratios. A strong case can be made that gender selection, in favor of males, is a form of sexism and discrimination against girls and women. Moreover, it may be a practice that exacerbates the problem over time, So, namely the reinforcement of cultural norms and expectations. If such an interpretation is valid, such a claim would add further credence to the suggestion that gender selection is a larger sociological and cultural problem that needs to be addressed. Now, prior to enacting laws that limit information and constrain reproductive choice, it is imperative that due diligence be done in terms of the metrics involved. Mere speculation about the potential pitfalls of the practice is inadequate. The unwarranted hysteria against gay marriage and parenting being a classic example. Some questions that need to be asked include, is gender selection truly happening in Canada? Is it at statistically significant rates given the entire Canadian population? At what rate do gender imbalances become a problem? What exactly are the problems of a skewed gender ratio? Do these sociological impacts warrant the withholding of information from parents and the lessening of reproductive choice? Is sex selection discriminatory against women? Is banning the disclosure of information prior to 30 weeks a violation of a woman's reproductive rights? Now, it's been said, for example, that a skewed gender ratio in favor of males will lead to an entire generation of frustrated men unable to find life partners, and that it could lead to increased violence and social unrest. While there may be some truth to these claims, they are far from proven. Such prognostications are not only heterocentric, they are also potentially sexist. Again, such fears may be warranted, but further studies from different methodological frameworks need to be conducted to ensure that they are genuine possibilities. Another issue that needs to be considered is the question of government involvement. Having the state limit information and constrain reproductive choice should always be considered a last resort. Moreover, banning assistive reproductive technologies is little to address the overarching problem that is sex selection. Where there is a will, there is a way and families' intent on choosing the gender of their offspring are clearly finding ways to get it done. What would be more welcome and likely or more effective are public information campaigns. The Canadian government should work to educate the public and sway popular opinion in favorable ways. In addition, in the event of grossly imbalanced sex ratios, the government could compensate those families who voluntarily choose to have girls, example through the Child Tax Benefit Program, we have here in Canada. Finally, there is the potential for this issue to self-correct. A region with the dearth of girls will create demand, and as the pendulum may start to swing the other way, ironically enough, the practice may eventually result in the revaluing of girls. Moreover, cultural and economic globalization will mitigate both the cultural and economic factors driving families to choose boys over girls, both within and outside of Canada. And all this without the need to pass laws like the one suggested by Rahendra Kale. This is clearly a complicated issue, and one with no clear-cut answers. What is certain, however is that much more thought needs to be put into the matter before such legislation is considered. And on that note, I will conclude this week's episode of the Sentient Developments podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please join me in about a week's time. and we will do it all over again. You can reach me, george, at should you have any comments or questions. And you can, of course, see my blog at sentientdevelopments.com or see my work at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Everyone, have yourselves a wonderful and productive week, and see you next time. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Sentient Developments. Goodbye.